Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. Today we have Dr. Ken Cislak, who is a chiropractor but also an athletic trainer, but not necessarily in that order. Uh, this was something that I found was unique about this conversation, and I went in personally with the wrong assumption that it was a chiropractor who may not have retired his AT credential, but it's actually kind of the opposite, where he works as an athletic trainer, even holding a doctor of chiropractic degree and so we talk a lot about that and how those complement each other how that ended up being the case as it's not the typical in quotes um, route you would think somebody would go with going and getting kind of that advanced education uh, especially in another profession but lots of really good and unique insight there um, to take in we talk a lot about evidence-based practice and then also get into service within the athletic training profession as Ken is the president-elect for the New Jersey Athletic Trainers Association, so a lot of ground covered in this episode, but it is all really interesting and some great insights on somebody that's been doing this for a while um, and has seen a lot of things as everything has grown and evolved. We are really excited to announce we filled our first throw a lifeline kit. Supplies have been ordered. Things are getting ready to get sent out. Um, you'll see more of that on our social media. That means we're ready to get going on round two. Uh, with that, if you want to check out athletictrainchat.com backslash throw a lifeline or clinicallypress.com backslash throw a lifeline, there we'll have our progress, how you can donate if you're willing to contribute. Um, unfortunately, ads no longer work for us, but you can do listener support through Anchor for as little as a dollar a month. Automatically charges to you. 100% of all those proceeds will go to filling these throw a lifeline kits and getting it out to athletic trainers that need them to help care for their patients. As always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. They've partnered up with us on this throw a lifeline. They're donating the kit portion of it to go out there, so we thank them for that. Keep them in mind for all your sports medicine needs. They've got a lot of really great stuff going on, so check out their social media for that as well. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode. episode of athletic training chat we are on with dr ken Cislak, who is a chiropractor and athletic trainer also a certified strength and conditioning specialist which we are going to touch on uh, within this episode amongst many other topics uh, this is one we've been in contact through various ways uh, to try and get an episode done through athletic training chat but also clinically press i'm still hoping to get um, our round table at some point um, on continuing education at in athletic training chat so i haven't forgot uh, just hard to get everybody's schedules coordinated but really looking forward to this conversation uh, just talking off air uh, ken has a really unique approach to how he works with his dual credentials which i from for me is the first time i've really heard of somebody kind of going this route um, with it being atc and dc which is kind of unique in and of itself but how they 
hold those two things and what their primary practice is. But before we get into too many of those things, I'm going to turn it over to Ken to just give him a little bit of background on you know, his education and training and what he's been up to, and we'll, then we'll jump into it. Okay, so uh, to, to keep it brief, so you know, many years ago, I was in high school and I was uh, intrigued by taking an anatomy and physiology class, and I decided I wanted to go into some field of healthcare, and I enjoyed working out and I enjoyed athletics. So I, I actually went to undergrad originally to be a physical therapist. And about uh, two, three months into that, I, I did not really like the initial classes I was taking and, and the vibe I got from the PT club. Uh, there. And uh, I found out that there was this thing called athletic training, where you essentially did many of the same things, uh, but with athletes. And I realized that's what I wanted to do, because at my high school, we, we didn't have an athletic trainer at the time. So I got involved in the athletic train, training program at uh, Kane College, Kane University now. And I graduated in 1989 with a degree in teaching and athletic training, because at the time, it wasn't a standalone degree at, at our university. And uh, my first job was as an athletic trainer slash phys ed teacher in Palisades Park uh, High School in New Jersey, which ironically was the high school I graduated from uh, five years prior. So it was quite exciting going back, being on the other side. But I, but I knew I wanted to, to go on and do additional things. So um, I had several friends that were in different fields of healthcare or were entering different fields of healthcare. And uh, a few of my friends were chiropractors and, and they spoke to me about what chiropractic was. And I'm going to be honest with you, uh, they were making some decent money back in, in sure. the uh, uh, mid eighties. So I was like, well, this is a great option. So um, I got married um, in 1991 and my wife and I went on a short honeymoon. And uh, three weeks later we were down in Georgia and I started chiropractic school and finished that in 1995 and uh, came back to uh, this, you know, to North Jersey, started to work in as associate. My first job actually was in Pennsylvania as an associate. Um, determined that um, I still wanted to do athletic training in some, in, in some way, shape or capacity. So it turns out that the town that I opened my first office in uh, had an opening for an athletic trainer who had just left. They had just left the position like a week prior. And I said, you know, I'd be willing to fill in and, and help out, you know, because my practice was just starting and, and I was just building it. And lo and behold, um, almost 25 years later, I'm still at that high school uh, functioning full time as their uh, certified athletic trainer, as well as practicing really part time. I see patients here and there as a chiropractor because I also teach part time in the morning as well. I teach anatomy and physiology. At another program, so so I keep my hands in many different fires, so to speak. But but I enjoy. I still have a passion for teaching. I enjoy teaching kids. I enjoy uh, obviously teaching anatomy and physiology. That's uh, one of my favorite topics, and uh, I enjoy athletic training. Uh, so you know, twenty five years into it, I'm I'm still a teenager. So that was kind of what we were talking about offline is how you are a full time athletic trainer in the secondary setting, which is in and of itself plenty to do mm -hmm. um but still staying you know keeping your chiropractic credentials and you know still treating and seeing patients there you you kind of alluded to it um as you were saying when you first thought about chiropractic that you're you had some buddies that were making some decent money and that 
currently seems to be and has been a very hot topic in the athletic training world. Mm -hmm. So how have you kind of balanced that and really decided to stay, you know, doing athletic training in that setting for 25 years when there might've been the draw to move out of it, maybe a little bit more normal hours, um, a little less event mm -hmm. coverage, obviously as a mm -hmm. chiropractor and the potential then to have a more, you know, lucrative income potentially. All right. So uh, it, I guess um, there was a, an unusual dynamic that started to occur. So right around the time that um, I got out of uh, chiropractic school and hung, hung my shingle and started to open a practice, um, managed care started to really hit the Northeast in earnest. And one of the big things that set up at the time was what they called HMOs, right? And HMOs had very restricted panels for specialists, chiropractic being a specialty, mm -hmm. considered a specialty. So like in, in my area, when I first hung my shingle and opened my office, I thought I could just, you know, open an office and people would come in and I could treat them and make money and, and life would be great. But in reality, in, in my area, there was only five chiropractors for all of that Bergen County area that might've been on the panel for say Blue Cross Blue Shield or, or sure. United Healthcare, or whatever. So if you weren't one of those five, it's not that you couldn't treat people. It's just that insurance wouldn't pay for it. Right. Okay. They had to pay fully out of pocket. Um, the only way you really could make money was to get involved in, in the personal injury game. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that wasn't something that I wanted to be involved with. Uh, you know, I believe in my whole philosophy, because starting out as an athletic trainer first, my whole philosophy is that you teach people how to take care of themselves. You get them going, you get them in that direction. But then at that point, you have to hand it off and they have to learn how to take care of themselves. I should not be a passive modality i shouldn't be an aspirin if you will sure. where they just come to me three days a week and we and i treat them and they go on their merry way and everything's fine but they keep coming back if i'm doing my job correctly at least in my opinion i'm teaching them how to take care of themselves and make uh, obviously that's not a great business model to make money so uh and again i would not play the personal injury game there was a lot of things with that that, that i don't feel comfortable with still to this day Sure. Um, so really I got into back into the athletic training and I continued with the athletic training because I've always enjoyed working with athletes. I've always enjoyed sports. Uh, I've enjoyed the camaraderie of, of the coaching staffs. I've been fortunate that for many years I've had pretty good coaches to work with in my school. Um, I just enjoyed all those aspects. And then I also, to be honest with you, I enjoyed having the steady paycheck where I didn't have to worry how much money was coming in that week from insurance. You know, was I getting fully paid? Was I only getting partially paid, et cetera? So and all the joys that, that, that comes with private practice. So um, that's really how I ended up staying in athletic training and, and, and why I've, I've stayed more towards that realm of, of my healthcare experience than, than say working full-time as a doctor of chiropractic. Interesting. Yeah. That, like I said, you're the first I've heard that has kind of gone that route where the mm -hmm that doctoral degree um, mm -hmm. is kind of the secondary to the, the AT credential. So right. yeah, really just curious. Um, kind of going beyond that, how did your work and your education in chiropractic, how has that impacted your clin clinical skills as an athletic trainer? 
Um, I know just kind of jokingly in my coming up, you know, athletic trainers are not, this is a very broad statement, generally afraid of doing anything with the back just because it gets complex. It's not necessarily very straightforward um, because there's so many multi-factors. So I have to imagine that's been somewhat advantageous to you just with a much more comprehensive understanding of so many different aspects of it. Right. All right. So very simply, um, I am thankful for my training in, in chiropractic. I will tell you that I learned many things during my education with chiropractic that really do help me in the clinical setting as an athletic trainer. Certainly my ability to differentially diagnose uh, was greatly improved by the education I received in you know chiropractic school. Sure. So without a doubt, um, that is probably the thing that I take most. I, I can look at things from a different perspective. With that being said, I will tell you this. When you get out of school, you know just enough to be dangerous. Right. And what I mean by that is you come out of school, and certainly when I came out of chiropractic school, fortunately enough, I was able to do very well. I graduated valedictorian in my class. You know, I, I thought I knew it all. Sure. And you know, 25 years later, I will tell you that I was probably dangerous when I first came out because I thought I knew it all. And right. now I know that I know very little. Okay. I think uh, uh, the, the longer you get into any type of practice, the more you realize you don't know a lot of things. Uh, and, and now yeah. I understand why medicine is so specialized because there's so much to know about so many things. You, you can't possibly know it all. And, and so I'm comfortable with saying, listen, I don't know the answer, but we'll try and find that answer or we'll try and refer to somebody that can answer that question. I'm not afraid to tell somebody now, I don't know what's going on because uh, I think you have to be honest with people. And I think you have to also understand what your limitations are. Um, but with that being said, the, the chiropractic education uh, helped me greatly through my years and being able to not only deal with parents, but also to be able to recognize things that might be a red flag and also to uh, allow me to um, just further my understanding of uh, human physiology. Totally agree. I had the same thing when I would go to like a continuing ed or, you know, a skills weekend and come back and think you're just going to fix everything with what right. you just learned and <laughs> quickly realize that that is not how that works. Um, I just made the transition from a university setting to a clinics setting and yeah you know, we don't get to look at x-rays and MRIs very much where I was. And now it's multiple times a day. And you just, the amount that you didn't even know you didn't know is incredible. Exactly. And it's humbling, but it's also motivating because it makes you a whole lot better. It definitely does. And it's exciting. It's exciting. I mean, yeah. I think most people, if they want to be good, they, they're constantly trying to learn new things. And I think one of the things that I had to work on when I was young that I, I can do much better now as I've gotten older is being able to understand that things that I thought were fact maybe are not so much based in fact as I originally believed. Sure. So for example, you know, uh, I've been able to give presentations at NATA multiple times and in setting up a presentation, you really have to understand and own the material because if you're going to get in front of people and you're going to speak about it, you darn well better understand what you're speaking about and you better be ready for questions if right. they have it and at least being able to give a reasonable answer. Sometimes the answer is, I don't know, but, but you try to give a reasonable answer. And 
in setting up these presentations on, for example, the neurophysiological aspects of manipulative therapies or, you know, the science of stretching, et cetera, so on, uh, soft tissue uh, treatment protocols, what I've realized is a lot of the things that we're taught out there are in fact not correct. Right. We're not based in any type of true fact. Sure. It's mostly theoretical. Uh, and, and so things that I thought were true, like, you know, we stretch muscles, you know, it's not necessarily true. Uh, and, and, and it's been humbling for me to learn that. And, but it's also exciting to teach people that, or, you know, help bring that knowledge across to other practitioners, excuse me, as well as students. I'm a preceptor for a local college program. Mm -hmm. And I tell students, one of the things I enjoy doing is teaching you things that took me 25 years to figure out myself. Right. So you're starting already ahead of where I was yes. at your time, you know, at your point in time. So, uh, you know, it, but it's, it's, I, I enjoy learning. I, I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly trying to understand things and I'm willing to also put aside facts that I thought were true when I find information that starts to prove otherwise. And I think that's important for us as a profession is we have to be willing to discard facts that have always been that way. Uh, if, if there's in fact new data to suggest that things are different. One quick aside before we dive into that, um, you just because you said you're an avid reader, um, Adam Grant is a behavioral psychologist out of Wharton, wrote a book called Think Again. Um, mm -hmm. I think you would really enjoy it just based on what- write you, that down. Yep, based on what you've just Maybe said. Maybe at the end. Yep, well, um, just based on what you were saying there, and for anybody listening, it, it just challenges you to challenge the way you think about things and being open to it. So it echoes everything you said. I think you're going to see yourself nodding a lot as you go, if you get, get that book and go through it. So I will. I will. So one of the other questions we had kind of framed up for this is um, your implementation of evidence-based practice. And like you had just talked about, giving presentations and really owning that material and understanding that some of the things that were maybe taught haven't been updated or were not as much fact as we were given. So just kind of to start off, I was just curious what, from your perspective, what your kind of definition of evidence-based practice is, and then we can kind of go into how you use it. Um, you know, A, in daily practice would be also as you have done presentations and education and so on. Okay, so, um, you know, the first question we need to start out with is what is evidence-based practice, right? So there's a lot of different opinions right now on what exactly is an evidence-based practice. And sure. I think the overlying or the general opinion is that evidence-based practice is practice that is shown in the literature to be efficacious and, and uh, effective. Um, but however, if you really go down that route, most of the things we do are not evidence-based, right? So does that mean we throw everything out the window because we don't actually have clear evidence that it works? Sure. And I would argue against that as well. I don't think we should be doing some, some of the crazier things that we do, but I think there's a lot of things that we don't fully understand that doesn't mean it doesn't work because we don't understand how it works, um, Chinese medicine uh, uh, principles, for example, uh, uh, traditional oriental medicine mm -hmm. uh, practices. I mean, there's a lot of that I don't think we fully understand. Now, I don't understand it either, but that doesn't mean that 
I could sit up on my high horse and say, well, we, we can't use that or we shouldn't use that because there's no evidence indicated it works. Well, there is some evidence in some people that it worked. How it's working, that's the big question. Sure. So same with manipulation. How does it work? You know, years ago in my own profession, there's still people that push, you know, a bone out of place principle. We know that's not true now. All right. We know that the most likely mechanism is some neurophysiological effect. Do we know precisely how that neurophysiological effect works? No, we have, there's a lot of different theories. There's some evidence to indicate that it involved descending pathways, et cetera. But that's not written in stone. That could change tomorrow. Sure. Our, our understanding of that could change you know, tomorrow, next week. So I think what we need to do is we need to try our best to follow evidence, but at the same time, understand that there are other factors, biopsychosocial factors involved that influence how we treat people. Um, a great example I think that I could probably give on that is soft tissue work, mm -hmm. right? Are we breaking up adhesions? Absolutely not, okay? But is touch creating a, a neurophysiological effect that makes somebody feel better? Do we, do we know that touch creates a, a, a positive effect in, in, in people, how they feel? Yes. So it's working. How's it working? We don't know. And then lastly, I think the thing that is truly underappreciated is the role of placebo. All right. Placebo is a real thing. There's, there's increasing evidence that there are actual chemical effects that occur in the brain and elsewhere from placebo. So there is things that are happening. It's not all in your head per se right. from, a, from a psychological standpoint. So we have to maximize that effect of placebo and understand that that might be a true treatment effect and could be evidence-based as well. So. so how do you navigate that then in your personal practice and then teach that to people? Personally, I agree with you 100%. And it took me a while to kind of get there. I've removed some things, but you still kind of keep them in the back of your pocket. I just remember one time working with a track athlete, you know, we put every kind of balm you could come up with into this mixture and we called it track solve. And this, you know, is oh, the next great. greatest thing. And um, we did a sham ultrasound and that was the only thing that fixed it. Even when we had pharma, pharmacy made ointments, you know, that had all the science in them, those didn't do anything, but just over the counter combinations all of a sudden did it. Um, you know, so I, I don't know, we tried all the other things based on the evidence, it wasn't working. So it made sense at that point to maybe see if the placebo effect could work and it happened to do with the trick for us. But how do you, how have you managed that and also then tried to teach it because that can be a hard concept for students to grasp because that isn't exactly a question on the BOC. Exactly. Okay. So just very quickly, just on an aside, it's funny you bring up that whole thing about the sham ultrasound because Josh Cleland, who is a big researcher in the physical therapy field, actually talked about that in one of his evidence-based lectures and talking about how they were doing all these evidence-based approaches for a patient and she was just not getting better. And she kept going back to the fact that she did get better when she used to go to her prior practitioner, he would use ultrasound. So he used, did everything that he felt was the correct thing to do. And then he finished off with a little bit of sham, I believe it was sham ultrasound. And sure enough, she came back the next day, clinically significant improvement. So 
it goes to show you that a lot of our beliefs play a role in how we respond to treatment. Mm -hmm. And again, that's something that's, we don't have the full evidence on, but we know that there is some, there is some evidence there to support that that plays a role. Exactly how? That's still somewhat speculative, but so how do I deal with that uh, with, with students? And what I do is like, when I'm talking about students, like my students uh, in, you know, in the athletic training room, not necessarily my students from the college where we're sure. a host program, but with my athletes, that's what I should say. Um, we do things like kinesio tape. We do things like, um, you know, light instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization. We do all those things, all right? Uh, we tell them that it's going to make them feel better because I think beliefs play an important role. Sometimes I'll explain to them the neurophysiology behind it, but for most people, they don't want to know that, sadly. Sure. Uh, and for kids, it's a lot to absorb. So we, we basically get over the, uh, how it possibly works, but don't spend too much time on that because again, when you put the kinesio tape on the kid and they walk out, they feel better. And if they feel better, they perform better. So exactly what mechanisms at play, I don't think we have to explain it in depth to them. Now to my students, I do, my athletic training students, I do, because sure. I want them to understand why we're doing this and what we're likely achieving by doing it. But for sometimes the patients, patients, unfortunately, but in reality, want simple answers. And yeah. Yeah. so that's why I think in my profession, chiropractic profession, for many years, people have stuck with that bone out of place or putting pressure on the nerve or whatever it may be because or breaking up adhesions because it's easy for people to picture that in their mind yep. and it makes it easier for them to understand you could get in and explain to them the whole physiological mechanism as we know it to be and 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 you're going to lose them and they're not going to fully understand what you're dealing with that you know talking about anyway for the most part so i'm not saying you shouldn't try to educate them but I don't think you should just barrage them with, well, this is where the evidence sure. is because sometimes it's not going to help and, and it's not going to help in your whole treatment effect. So you're honest with them. You tell them this is what we know to a point. But I think unless they really ask you questions, I don't know if you necessarily have to get in, in depth with each patient. But again, every patient is different. Some people are really inquisitive and want to know that, that information. So yeah, I'll sit down and have a conversation with a patient or an athlete if they're really interested. But if the other ones are not really interested, I'm not going to force feed them that information. Right. But I'm just going to constantly seek feedback. Are, are they improving with the approach that we're, we're using? And if they are, we continue down that road. If they're not, I have to go back in my toolbox and figure out what else do I need to try. And then maybe sometimes that toolbox involves just referring them out because I don't have the answer. Right. And that's kind of where, where we're at with that. Have use that a lot, you know, with athletes is what, how much do you want to know? And, you know, some of them when working in the collegiate, well, I'm pre PT. So give me the, the whole bit of it. And that seems to trigger them like, okay, I understand now exactly what you're trying to accomplish with that. Even in the clinic setting, you know, for a lot of knee osteoarthritis, we'll do a lot of hip strengthening and we'll have to just explain like, well, why are you, why are you focusing on my hips? It's my knee. And for some of them, as soon as you give them a little bit of that explanation, you can, you see the light bulb go and there's instant buy-in to, okay, I get it now. This makes sense. Um, where others are just like, yeah, what do you want me to do? Cause I'm probably not going to do it anyway, but that's a different story. Um, do you see that, or in your opinion, is part of kind of the evidence base, is that 
meeting the patient where they are or I, is that a part I've heard, you know, like the evidence-based like tripod, is that one of the parts of that, of the patient expectations and you've referenced the patient's beliefs? Yes, uh, I, you know, I agree. You meet the patient where they are and patient expectations play a huge role in treatment effect. I mean, there, there has been a lot of data to support that. So, and that's why keeping a positive, um, you know, keeping a positive outlook on treatment is really important um, in, in many ways, all right? Not only from the patient's side, but even as a clinician. Clinici clinicians that practice more, um, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, practice more authoritatively, all right, generally get better results than the clinicians that don't, even if they're doing the exact same treatment. And I think is because they convey to the patient their confidence that what they're doing is the right way to go. And patients pick up on that and that influences how they respond to treatment. So, so I think it's important that we as clinicians, you know, practice confidently. I'm not saying that we should be pra practice arrogantly or, you know, sometimes the opposite end of that right. pendulum is that we're, we're cocky and we're not paying attention to things. But I do believe that instilling confidence in the patient that what we are doing is the best route to go, goes a long way in, in making that treatment successful or more, more likely to be successful. Totally agree. Anything else around this evidence-based um, thing that we didn't cover? Because I know we wanted to talk about service um, as well, and I, but I don't want to bypass this because I think this is also tends to be a debate that gets revved up every now and again um, yeah, well, I mean, on social uh, media. So uh, just if you, you've made some great points and just want to make sure that we touch on everything. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think we have for the most part, again, because I mean, we could go on for hours talking about evidence-based, especially, especially if we start to talk about different, you know, different uh, treatment approaches. Sure. Um, but again, I, I think that's why I'm kind of glad that the uh, NATA is going away from that EBP uh, credits. And, and as a, a person involved in setting up meetings and, and going through the BLC approval process sure. for meetings and presentations, not only in giving them, but also in being the person that's trying to get the approval for other, other uh, right. presenters. I think I always had a problem with that, that approach. And, and the reason why, because my belief is that with rare exceptions, every presentation should be evidence-based or based on evidence that we know to that point, okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. When they broke it down to category A and evidence-based, to me, it was like saying, well, the, the stuff in category A really wasn't based on any evidence. Only this stuff is. And, and I think it, it was misleading uh, to, to people attending these presentations. I think I see, or I think I believe, I have an idea of where they were coming from with that. Sure. But the reality is, I always believe that all presentations should fit that evidence-based approach. You know, again, there's rare exceptions to certain topics that can't be evidence-based, right? But because they maybe are not clinical in nature, but everything, at least from a clinical standpoint, should have an evidence base to it. And if you can't provide any, any evidence base to it, we probably shouldn't be presenting, you know? Um, so I do believe evidence-based uh, practice is the way to go in all professions. Uh, but I mean, you could go to medicine, really look at the evidence for a lot of orthopedic procedures. 
I sure. mean, it's, it's actually mind boggling how much of what is done and accepted as fact doesn't have a lot of evidence to support its efficacy, certainly right. in the long term. So, you know, do we tell them to stop doing all those surgeries or we stop doing uh, PRP injections or whatever because we can't find evidence to support it? Well, some people get better with it. Some people don't. Same with, same with uh, manipulation. There are clinical prediction rules, but even those clinical prediction rules don't have a lot of evidence to support that they work in every instance, all right? Some people will benefit from manipulation. Some people will not at all, right? right? We, we try to come up with, little cookbook ways to figure out uh, who those patients will be. But the reality is until you actually try it on the patient and give it a, a, a course of care, it doesn't mean a lot because they might have a hip internal rotation less than 35 degrees. They may have hypomobility, et cetera, but they may not respond to the manipulation. And then you get somebody who doesn't fit in those categories and they do. So you know, sometimes we have to sit back and understand that there's a lot that we still don't know. Um, but again, keep to, not to keep repeating myself, we should try to stay with the evidence as much as possible. Yeah, I think uh, one I've kind of taken is evidence-influenced approach to it. So you're taking the evidence plus everything you're seeing, because as you just alluded to, each individual is different. Um, I think what somebody, I read an example one time, Vince Carter had basically no ankle dorsiflexion. Well, that's probably an asset to Vince Carter, the basketball player, for what he does because he jumps so well. So do we need to go and hammer and work to get him 10 to 15 degrees of ankle range of motion? Or maybe we're actually taking away one of his best assets. You know, and just kind of taking that all into perspective when you're, you're treating a single person just because everybody is and their beliefs, as you referenced, um, is very different. So... So kind of moving on, um, we had talked about just a little bit um, off um, air before we got started. You have just been voted in as president-elect uh, for the state association in New Jersey. Um, and you referenced kind of maybe later in your career getting into service and how you are now seeing why it is very important for younger ATs uh, to get into service and why you think that's important. And so I Again, I think another really big topic um, that can benefit a lot of people. So um, what led you to deciding at this point, you know, in your career to go to, you know, for service? And if did you take, kind of have steps leading up to becoming president-elect or did you just go right for that? Okay, good question. All right. So, you know, for many years as I was, you know, growing through the, the practice of athletic training, I did want to get involved, but life being busy as it is and, you know, working two jobs, essentially, uh, as well as having young, young kids in home, it was, it was hard to really spread myself any thinner than what I was, than what I was already doing. So I, I, my goal was to always get involved, but it took a while. And then finally, um, one of the, um, executive council members in New Jersey, John Furtado reached out to me and he was like, Ken, I know you said you wanted to get involved, you know, would you like to take on an open position as the nominations chair for the Athletic Training Society in New Jersey? And I was like, yeah, he goes, it doesn't take a lot of time. You know, it's really only labor intensive a couple of times a year when we you know, run the nomination process and get the election set. I said, yeah, by all means, I, I, I'd be happy to. 
And, and that really got me involved with the state association. Uh, and, and in doing that, I realized that it really is a great thing to do. Um, the state association uh, certainly helps athletic trainers at the local level by, by pushing, um, you know, pushing um, issues that, that are certainly important to that segment. And, and they really drive legislation that, that plays a big role in, in affecting athletic training, for example, state practice acts. So mm-hmm. um, I determined that I really enjoyed doing that, that I wanted to get involved uh, more so. So I ran for Northern representative for, for the state uh, and was fortunate enough to be elected to that. And then just recently uh, ran for president elect and, and was fortunate enough to be affirmed for that as well. So. Um, it's exciting. It's exciting. It, it's certainly, you know, time, there's some time issues with it, but without a doubt, I think giving back to the profession, uh, is, is very rewarding in many ways. And I know I probably get back much more from, from it than I give into it. So, um, if there's one thing I could encourage all young people to do, and we're trying to do this, excuse me, in, in our state as well, is getting young people more involved in the processes from an earlier point and kind of guiding them up through the process so that, you know, nobody's going from having done nothing to becoming president elect. I mean, that would be a big jump. Uh, You know, I've been doing it now for a while between the committee chair as well as the Northern rep. And there's still a lot of things that, you know, I don't know and that I'm going to have to learn real quickly eventually assume the president position uh, because you are now the the, the go-to person for the organization. Uh, And that's a lot of, you know, stuff to put on your shoulders, especially in a state like New Jersey, where we've had just absolutely tremendous leaders for athletic training come through our society. Um, you know, a lot of big, big shoes to fill. So uh, I'm excited and nervous at the same time, but I, I would encourage every person listening, get involved with your state association, you know, and then if it moves on to regional like association like EATA or even at the NATA level, that's how you get to that level if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, get involved in your state association, volunteer, start on a committee, move up from there. You will, you will not regret it. Um, it it's, it's, you know, it's been so satisfying in so many ways. And, and the friendships that I've already started to make with other people in my state have been invaluable to my own progression as a clinician. I think that's, Spot on. Um, I just recently, within the last year or two, got decided I wanted to get involved, you know, be able to try and have an impact in some way in a much broader sense than just my little world of athletic training. So have become a regional rep within our state and we'll try and get comfortable in the lay of the land and figure out where that may take me from here. So it's something that you don't quite understand it. And I know that comes up a lot is, you know, what are people doing? You know, what are the associations doing and the committees doing for the profession? And it's just hard to understand without being in it, even if it's just observing it. um, It becomes very eye opening about some of the work that goes into when, especially if you're going to get bills changed or amended or adjusted or whatever it may be, the the amount of effort that goes into that um, is pretty impressive once you actually see yeah. it up close in person um just kind of brings in a whole new light to it yeah i mean what we're starting to do in our state is we're looking to reopen our practice act which is yep. a whole 
big, as you know, drawn out process uh, because we need to amend certain things because the practice of athletic training is changing, which is probably one of the questions we'll be getting into. Uh, and so we're trying to amend the practice act to make it easier for our members to practice in alternative settings. Yep. But, you know, that'll be a fight, obviously, with other organizations, but, but a fight that I think is worth fighting for because our profession is changing and evolving. And, and we have to recognize that and, and try to, you know, move in that direction as well. Yeah, we just got through opening it to remove the need for physician signature on our practice protocols. And we went through and got that done well. And I know there's a couple other big ones that are the goals over the next couple of years. So um, I will be very interested to try and get involved in the legislative side because it seems endlessly fascinating and frustrating all at the same time, but it should be interesting. Yes, yes. It, it's, uh, I'm starting to learn that process myself. And I will tell you that I think those words fascinating and frustrating, <laughs> you know, identify it perfectly well. Well, we'll stay tuned and I'll keep an eye out on what's happening in New Jersey uh, and see if we can maybe bounce some ideas off each other as we get going. With that would be thing. great. Um, anything else that you'd really like to cover uh, that we didn't get to um, before we jump into the athletic training track questions? Um, no, I think I think we, we covered it. I mean, I know you you touched upon that I had this CSCS, um, you know, designation and I had gotten that actually right around the same time I had uh, attained my athletic training certification so sure. way back in 1989 because I was very involved in, in weight training and, and so that was a logical that I wanted to go for that certification yep. um, as far as using it in in my clinical situation it, it certainly has helped me but not so much that the certification has but my continued interest in weight training and strength training and how it works and the mechanisms, et cetera. And, and the role that that whole process plays in, you know, athletic rehabilitation. Right. Uh, so in, in that sense, it's been helpful, but I think with, as far as letters behind your name, you know, it certainly needs to put letters behind your name. I think yep. we all kind of get excited about it, but, but the reality is I think it, it, what's important is not only that you put letters behind your name, but more importantly, that you gain something from those letters, all right? Yes. So that you take certifications that are worth worthwhile, as opposed to just trying to add another uh, a few uh, symbols after your name. Um, so, but I mean, early on, you know, you want to have as many you know letters next to your name as yep. possible. Now you realize that really, what's more important is: did you come out of that course and learn something? Is it something that you can apply in a clinical situation or in life, yep. right? Yep. And uh, that will make you better. And if you did, then it doesn't matter how few or how many letters it provides, you know, after your last name. Um, and, and that's one thing I would encourage students to do is to think about programs that are going to make them a better clinician and something that fits in with their philosophies on yep. practice. I, extremely well said. I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think those are some really important points, especially on a continuing education. And the, I've also been... I've actually been CSCS twice because I didn't renew because I didn't have a lot of money at one point and then had to take the test again. So it is doable to do it twice. Um, I heard it's gotten much harder, though. My understanding is it's a, it's a hard test now. At least it, that's it, what I hear. There's a couple questions on there. I was like, that definitely was not in the book because I, I read that book <laughs> through and through. And it, there was not, that was not in there. I, I can guarantee you that. Um, but no, I think 
it's such a useful one in the guise of you know rehab and strength training intensity and volume is really the two the two major differences between the two of them and that programming aspect and kind of that progression can be really useful in your rehab and as you reference that full return to activity just having that different approach to it um, is one that if people are looking at it is is worthwhile yes all right athletic training chat questions i'm ready all right where do you see athletic training going in the next five to 10 years? And if you can kind of set the example. Okay. So, you know, I've been following all the changes that are occurring in athletic training uh, closely one, because I find it very fascinating and one, because it'll impact how I, uh, how I function as an executive council member. Sure. Um, I, it, I was going to say chiropractic athletic training is at a crossroads. And, and that's because there's many changes that are occurring. Obviously, movement onto an entry-level master's is going to impact profession numbers. Uh, alternative settings is, is growing, as, as you're fully aware, right? Uh, more and more athletic trainees are ending up in the uh, clinical situation. Um, I know the NATA doesn't like to use the word physician extender, but, but many people are functioning in that type of capacity. Uh, within a clinical setting and are leaving the school setting, uh, which has been our traditional setting, schools and, and professional teams. And then what's really interesting is the growth of occupational athletic training or athletic trainers in occupational settings like Amazon. Yeah. Um, I think that's going to continue to grow because we offer a valuable service to these organizations and companies uh, in, in, in a reasonable way, you know, that, that, that can reasonably affect um, you know, work injury rates, uh, return to work, um, you know, ergonomics, et cetera. So I see athletic training changing. And that's why I think we as a profession have to get on top of this and we have to fight for changes in practice settings uh, or wording and scope of language, you know, scope of practice to allow people to enter these settings in, in a reasonable way. Like in New Jersey, uh, athletic trainers really can't do much in a physical therapy clinic because we're only allowed to deal with athletes, all right? That's in our practice act. So we have to start to open up the definition of what is an athlete versus maybe somebody that's athletic, all right? right. So for example, so uh, these are things that we have to do because right now our members are very limited in certain practice settings. Now you could go across the, the border to New York and the ability of an athletic trainer to practice in a clinical setting is much greater. So, and I'm sure it is in every other state. And, and so sure. what we have to do is we have to recognize these changes and, and work with them. I also think that going to an entry-level master's is going to um, decrease the number of people applying into our programs. I think we're already starting to see possibly the early effects of that with the openings that are going unfilled in athletic training. And, and um, I don't know that I'm, I'm, you know, to be quite frank, I don't know that I agree that going to an entry-level master's was the way to go. I certainly like the whole concept of specialization and these orthopedic specializations and maybe going on to further residency specializations. Mm -hmm. But I think going to an entry-level master's may, may not be the best thing for us in the long term. We'll say, we'll say I could Absolutely. be totally wrong. Yep. Um, but I think it's, it's weeding out some people that 
even if they didn't stay in athletic training, would have been good ambassadors for athletic training. So, for example, we've had students in the past that would go on to become a PA or maybe go on to med school uh, or, or go on to PT school. Uh, and while people would say, well, then they didn't really stay in athletic training. Well, no, maybe they didn't, but now they have a better appreciation of athletic training and it helps that interprofessional collaboration. Sure. If they came up as an AT and they understand what an AT is, as opposed to a physical therapist or a PA or a medical doctor who has no idea what an athletic trainer is and what they right. do. And they go by the word trainer and they think we do personal training, right? So, yep. so having people out there, even if they didn't function in our setting, but having a, a, a clear understanding of what athletic training is, was helpful to our profession as a whole. And I think that's probably going to change because now those people that are going on to those things will go straight. They won't go through athletic training first. Um, and again, people, different people have different opinions on that. They may vehemently disagree with me. That's fine. I think, you know, debate is, is healthy for any profession, sure. but uh, these are challenges that I think we're going to have to uh, deal with in the coming years in, in, in our profession. I think it'll be really interesting on the, you know, the job, filling shortage you know we just don't have enough people out there does that spark potentially the salary thing because again who's going to come in and necessarily fill those roles i don't know that there's another profession that would come in it's not like a pt is going to take a huge pay cut to go take an at job at some of these places there's not really another profession that can necessarily step into that and so maybe that ends up hopefully benefiting us in the long run um, you know, as they realize that it just needs to be higher compensation, you start getting some shifting around and that, you know, raises everybody up, but I'm, I'm hopeful that that might be the case. Um, but yes, it, it, it will be very interesting over that next five to 10 years. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the data right now, it looks like, uh, salaries are, you know, uh, employers are realizing that if they don't increase the salary or give bonuses or whatever, they're not going to fill that position. So we're starting to see that, but I think ultimately what's going to hold us back as a profession is that we have to really strive for at the national level is uh, a push for reimbursement, okay? Yes. To be recognized by Medicare a, yep. as a reimbursable entity. Yep. And I think that if we can somehow achieve that on a national level, um, that's really going to open the profession and that's going to take away some of the other problems that we're starting to see and deal with. So. Um, if we can somehow push that, and again, it's going to take a push at the national level to do that, a, a big push, a continued big push. I know they're trying, but um, I, I think that's going to be the key to really bringing the profession onto the next level, more yeah. so than any change in degree. I, I agree. Yeah, we were just having this conversation yesterday, actually, because um, yeah. that would be a game changer in the clinical setting, which would then, I think, kind of bring everything else up around. Um, just for how, you know, the clinical setting operates, but. Exactly. If you could go back and give yourself some advice as a young athletic trainer, what would that advice be? And if you could set the context of when you would be giving that to yourself. All right. So um, I guess I kind of already alluded to that. And that was that if I could go back to my young self and say, what would I do differently uh, as an athletic trainer? Uh, what I would have done is got involved in the state organization much earlier at a much lower level 
you know, meaning get involved with a committee, get on a committee, start to get involved in that aspect of it. It's not very time consuming. You start to learn about issues that affect, you know, your state and, and, and your, your practice setting. Uh, and, and I would encourage them to just go out and learn, all right? Continue to learn. Don't accept that what you know today is fact because you'll find out tomorrow or the day after that you were wrong, okay? Mm -hmm. So constantly learn. Uh, constantly read. What I like to do is I like to listen to podcasts when I'm driving. I, I load them up onto my uh, USB drive, stick it in my car when I'm driving, and I'll listen to podcasts. I'm always learning about different topics. I think a topic that I've developed an interest in as I've gotten older is nutrition. Sure. And it's just amazing how much stuff I just thought I knew. I just didn't absolutely know anything about. And that's probably opened my eyes more than anything else. The role that nutrition can play in health and healing uh, and, and just facts that we just thought were in fact true uh, may not be as true as we thought they were. So, you know, without not getting involved in, in, in the crazy stuff too, because there's a lot of nutritional <laughs> right, out there. Right. But, but there is some interesting stuff that, that certainly can apply to a lot of different settings and health conditions that I think is just not out there enough. And I don't understand why. And, and, you know, the cynic in me can come up with a bunch of different conspiratorial theories, but I think it's a lot of it's just because there's just so much stuff out there. People right. don't know what to believe and what not to believe, but learn, just learn, try to make time each week to read or listen to something and, and get involved. Great advice. On what has been the most influential resource that you have found in your career? You know, um, I think, you know, there, there, that, that's a tough question. Yeah, <laughs> and the reason why I say a it's a tough question. question is because it depends on what stage of my career that I'm in. So, sure. you know, early on in my career, obviously, it was, it was getting my chiropractic degree. Later on, it was learning about, you know, soft tissue treatments and, and the use of like uh, instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization and active release type techniques and stuff yep. like that. And then I progressed to, you know, the selective functional movement assessment and things along movement screening uh, as a way to go. Uh, and then finally, where I'm at right now, besides nutrition is, um, you know, really starting to use more, even in my own practice, chiropractic, provocative motion testing, uh, you know, directional preference testing, McKenzie type stuff. Okay. So, but, but with all those different aspects, there's pluses and minuses, sure. meaning that, you know, you try to dive all in and then you realize that it just doesn't work quite the way they told us it was going to work, you know, when we took the classes, right? Or it's not as reliable as we thought it was, or they seem to indicate it was. And so, but that's fine. Again, I, I think that's fine. Does it help you in certain select conditions? And I think a good clinician will keep an open mind on everything and they'll put enough things in their toolbox. Sometimes not good to have too many things in your toolbox because right. then you don't know what direction to go. But if you can have enough things in your toolbox so if that A is not working with that patient, you move on to B and then maybe have a plan C. Sure. You know, and and I think that's um, you know, that's that's probably my best, you know, course of advice in that area. No, I think that's perfect. Um, as an AT in your current role, how do you take care of yourself? 
All right, so that is a really good question. Um, well, shout out so to I Dan try to work Bruce, out yeah. here and there when I have a few moments of time, but my, my typical day, I leave the house at about 7.15 and most nights I don't get home till 8, 8.30. Okay. So, uh, and then I have Saturdays, you know, during, during most sports seasons, there's at least some degree of, of work to do on a Saturday. Like this, this Saturday, we have a football game. I'll arrive in at three. I probably won't get home till like 10. So, uh, you know, but along that lines, I think, this is another uh, suggestion I should have left out earlier. Find a work-life balance and, and try to adhere to it. I think early on in my, in my career, I put way too much time into my work and not enough time into my family as I should have. And, and my kids were young and I did make an effort to be at all the big things in their life. But as an athletic trainer, for example, when my kids played sports at the high school level, I missed a lot of things because when they had games, of course, I had games to cover. And fortunately, I, I had an AD, uh, not the current one, the one before that. My current AD is great as well. But I mean, the one before that who told me one time, he said, listen, you're never going to get family time back. Take off. If you have something important happen, take off. We'll find a way to cover it. And, and I appreciated that because I see, and this will probably rub some, some, some people wrong, but I see people in our profession that seem to be excited about the fact that they work crazy amounts of hours and they wear it like a, a badge of honor. And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know what? Yes, we have a commitment to our athletes, but we also have a commitment to ourselves and our families. And if we can't keep our own home situation happy and keep everybody, you know, uh, you know, spend time and have that balance, what's going to happen is, you're going to end up resenting your job. And if you resent your job, you're not going to be good at it. And you're not going to be as good at it as you could be, I should say. Okay. So I think we have to find that work-life balance. And I know it's hard for young clinicians to do that. But if there's anything that one piece of advice that you could walk out of here with me today is, trust me, your job will still be there tomorrow. Uh, and if you were gone tomorrow, I'm sorry to say this, but they would have the job posted the day after all right find that balance between your work and your life and your family and if you do that you will be a better clinician for it yeah that was one um, i got asked a question and i took it i think it was from an adam grant thing and well yes you try and make yourself indispensable and i don't mean it's not i don't mean it's a, a negative connotation you, you are replaceable almost no matter how good you are there's somebody out there that's going to be just as good, probably better at something than you are. And that's, that's depressing to a degree, but it's also just a comforting reality of like trying to find that balance and that, like, as you just referenced, if you were to leave, they will get it posted and somebody will take that job and maybe they don't do it exactly like you did, but things are still going to continue. It'll still go on and, you know, maybe they'll end up, maybe doing better than you did and that's okay mm -hmm. but that as you reference like that time for yourself and your family if you have one you know that that's time you'll you never get back. back that time yeah. you will never get back that time so i mean really so don't miss those important moments with your family you will never get it back so i think that's great advice and glad to hear that one mm -hmm. um Next one, if you could change or eliminate one thing, modality, a common practice, a mindset, or whatever you choose, 
in the field of athletic training. And I'd also be curious about chiropractic as we talked about, what would it be? Okay. All right. This is another one that'll rub some, some feathers the wrong <laughs> way. Um, probably the thing that bothers me most about athletic training is how much we emphasize taping as part okay. of our identity. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that I try to teach my students is yes, we can tape and on game days, I'm, I'm as guilty as everybody else. I'll tape all their, you know, the kids that want ankles taped, I'll tape it or the wrists that want to get taped, I'll tape it, you know, cause I realize the placebo effect that, that, that plays on, on many things. But I, I tried my best to avoid taping athletes as much as possible because it becomes a crutch. It's sure. a pill, just like an aspirin. They believe it's doing more than it really is. And it becomes our identity. Like, just go get it taped. And, and there's so much more to what we do than that. We are hired. You could teach anybody to tape. You really could. You could teach probably a five-year-old to tape at some point. It's a small skill set a bigger picture. Right. What is our job? Our job is to be a healthcare provider, to triage injuries, to perform uh, rehabilitation as necessary. That's where our worth is. Our worth is not in taping ankles or wrists or quads. Uh, that is just, but yet it seems like sometimes so much, so much of our identity is tied into taping athletes. You know, I hear, I see people right now, like I had to tape the whole team. No, you didn't really have to tape the whole team. You chose to tape the whole team because maybe that's the, the, the um, expectation you set yep. or the prior athletic trainer set. But no, you didn't have to. And I don't even know that that was even truly beneficial. Again, my opinion, people will disagree with me. But, but I think that we have to get away from that being the defining role of athletic trainers. Yep. I, I like that. Um, did you have anything for the chiropractic realm? That might be a little bit of a spot question, but I'd just be curious. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I think if I could eliminate one thing from chiropractic, it would be that expectation that if you go to a chiropractor, you're going to have to go for weeks and months, go three times a week for four weeks and two times a week for four weeks and then maintenance care. And I'm not yep. saying that there aren't patients that do need that. Sure. But that shouldn't be the expectation that I know once I go there, I'm going to have to keep coming back. I think a good clinician, again, what does doctor mean? I believe they, they, they claim doctor means teacher, right? I believe a good clinician is going to teach a patient how to take care of themselves. And that's what kind of drew me towards McKenzie, all right, is teach people ways that they could go home and take care of themselves yep. and help themselves get better. Now, now it's on them to follow through with that, right? You know, we can't always force a patient to get better. Some patients prefer somebody else to fix them. They sure. really want to go through a hard part of fixing themselves. Sure. But, but, you know, you can't control that. You can only control what you can. And, and so what I try to do is teach people how to take care of themselves. And so, I would get away, but again, it's a business, you know, and, and nope. that's the problem. You know, that's the, the catch 22 here is how do you make money? It's same in physical therapy. People like when I went to the physical therapist, they taught me for, an, they, they treated me for an hour and a half because the average person doesn't know it's billable units. Right. Right. So they stick you on the hot pack then they do some massage and then they do some therapeutic exercise, maybe two units, and then they throw you on the stim because it's billable units. And I know insurance is getting away from that, luckily, but that's really 
where it comes down to. You could probably get the same effects in 15 minutes as you can in an hour and 10 minutes. Sure. I really believe that. I believe more is not better, but more is better if you're trying to make money. So, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, that, and that's the, that's the catch 22 in our, in our society of, you know, healthcare is, you know, you want to maximize billing and I get it. It's a business. I get it. But, you know, is it really the best way? I don't, I don't, I don't really believe so. Got it. Perfect. I believe well. it's less, less is better. I really do truly believe that as I've gotten along in my life, I believe that the less, the least you can do to affect change is better than doing a whole bunch. Yep. I like the concept of a minimal effective dose. What's the minimal amount you got to exactly. do to get the maximum amount of benefit. Most of the time that's that 80, 20 principle. You're going to get 80% of the way with, you know, whatever it may be. And then that last little bit may not be worth chasing down. Right. It, it depends on the, the patient in front of yep. you. Absolutely. The Final question. Uh, what does being an athletic trainer mean to you? Okay, so uh, being an athletic trainer to me means being uh, a primary care provider for the athlete, athletes in your population and uh, or the patients in your office. And, and what I think the role that we play, especially at the, the, the collegiate and high school level, is we are that resource for athletes to go to sometimes for things other than even just injuries. Like I have kids that come in and they just want to hang around in the athletic training room. And sometimes I have to kick them out. It's like, listen, we, we can't hang out it's too busy. You know, now with COVID protocols, we can't have too many people in the room at one time, et cetera. But, but I realize that they feel comfortable. They feel safe in, in the athletic training facility. And luckily right outside my room, I have a very large area that they can kind of hang a little sure. bit if they want to, uh, you know, we'll have them do some exercise while they're in there or whatever. But but I realized that we are sometimes the only resource they have to talk to, uh, the only resource that they may go to, to, to seek treatment. Sometimes they've gone to doctors and doctors have kind of just quickly treated them and sent them off with a short script. And I'm like, nah, I don't think that's what's going on. Right. You know? And I, um, and luckily with my, cause in New Jersey, I work under the auspices in my as an athletic trainer, I work under physician's direction. You know, um, I have a great school physician that I work with and, and, and he tells me, Ken, if you get a note from a doctor and you don't feel that that kid's ready to return, you don't return them. I'm totally with you. And, and we work great together because he's a, he's a pediatrician and I am, you know, the athletic trainer. So when we're on the sideline, I think we offer a, a perfect compliment to one another because I'm comfortable with dealing with the orthopedic stuff. All right. Nobody's getting surgery on the field. So Right. And, and there's no disrespect to an orthopedist, but, sure. you know, nobody's getting surgery on the field. Most of the orthopedic stuff I can deal with. Anything that has to be really packaged, we have the EMS there anyway to get them packaged in the hospital. But what if the kid's having like a respiratory issue or they're having a cardiac issue? Well, he's that's that's more in his wheelhouse than mine. Sure. So we complement each other well and we know how to work with each other. You know, what strengths he has, what strengths I have. He lets me do my thing. When I feel that he needs to, he comes in and does his thing. And I think that's the ideal situation. And I know it kind of went off the setting, but I think that's what we do though in the athletic training room is we, we're that primary point of contact for most, uh, most athletes. And, you know, hopefully as, as we increase in the clinical setting, we'll be that patient that spends, I mean, that clinician that spends more time with the patient because doctor's time is money. 
yep. and they're in and out. Um, and just on a quick aside, I mean, for example, when, when my kids were born, uh, we went to a obstetric group, but we used the midwives. Yep. And the reason why we use the midwives is I thought we got much better care. They spent time with us each day. They spent, I mean, they were in with us a half hour, you know, in, in office visits. They listened to you. They were there almost the entire birth process. You know, we wouldn't have got that with an obstetrician. Sure. Right. So, uh, but yet what was nice was they were midwives within an obstetric group. So if there was a complication, they were, they were there and they were ready to take over. But yep. sometimes having that clinician that's there to listen makes a world of difference in a patient, as well as picking up on things that maybe the doctor didn't because they didn't spend the time. I think one last thing, I just want to give you an example. Uh, Stu McGill, are you familiar with Stu McGill, the, the biomechanist? Yes. Yep. Stu says like when he meets with a patient for the first time, he spends two and a half, three hours with them. Yes. And spends an hour talking with them before he even starts to look at them. And, and that's, unfortunately, in our current society, we, like no clinician does that. And I'll be honest, I don't do that either in the athletic training room. I don't have time. I'm sure. swamped, you know, most days. With patients, I try to do that, you know, because I, I run a smaller practice. So I, I try to spend that time to really listen to what, how this is impacting their health, what, what their goals are. And then we spend really time in the examination and the assessment to try and figure out what we think is, you know, what I think is going on. And, and sometimes you just can't do that in 15 minutes or even 30 minutes. Right. Um, so, but, but as an athletic trainer, I think, cause we see these kids daily, we, you know, we have the ability to see them daily. We, we were able to give them a, a level of care that they just really can't get from other clinicians. Completely agree. Well, um, just kind of to wrap up then, if people wanted to find you or connect with you, what would be the best way for them to do so? All right. So I'm not too social media savvy. My wife always tells me I should. Uh, and actually, you know, I'm probably going to be retiring from this, this level soon and going back into the clinical setting. So, uh, yeah. so I probably should be doing that. But uh, I have a, a Twitter account where I post research, anything that I come across that, that looks interesting. And it's uh, CZLAC DR. So it's CZLAC, my last name, with yep. DR, uh, yeah. you know, at, at CZLAC DR, I should say. Yep. Uh, and that's my Twitter um, account. I'm probably going to open an Instagram account. I probably should because that seems to be the way to go. Um, uh, Facebook is really, I just, I just use to keep, keep in touch with, with old friends and, and family. Uh, sure. But I probably will eventually open a second Facebook account, you know, uh, or whatever, whatever clinical situation I'm in. We yep. have a, you know, a Facebook account. So I Perfect. realize social media is the way to go today to, to keep in touch with people. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you being on. I'm glad we finally connected. Uh, this was a great conversation with so much to take away from it. I took away a lot. So really Thanks. appreciate it. I, I enjoyed it as well. I, you know, as you can tell, I enjoy talking. So, um, you know, that's sometimes to, to my own fault, but, uh, <laughs> but I really enjoy learning and I really enjoy networking and speaking with other clinicians and, and learning about, you know, what, what are important topics and all, uh, because I really do want to, uh, continue to be a voice in our professions, uh, especially athletic training. Sure. And, um, it's, it's still the one that's near and dear to my heart. And, um, you know, this, this affords me the opportunity to do so and, and to learn. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. I look forward to another one at some point in the future. So sounds good. All right.